I love telling this story so much. It's probably the story I've told the most of my podcast, the most, um, as some of my listeners may know, um, I studied financial economics in school, which is essentially an economics degree with some finance on it. And within that class, I had this money making class and my professor was teaching us this one concept that we had to study and learn on, on the test and everything. And it's called efficient market hypothesis. Essentially what this, the definition for the efficient market hypothesis is and what it hypothesizes is that the market is perfectly priced all the time, always. And realistically, you can't make any additional premium on your investments. You can only make you know, the market rate, which is 8% or whatever the index does, the S&P 500. You can only make that 8% per year. And that's just because the market's perfectly priced. If it wasn't perfectly priced, if there was some undervalued stocks within the market, then guess what? Someone would go buy those under market value stocks, they'd hold them, and then that makes the market perfectly priced. You see, us as retail investors, retail just means the average day individual investors, we can't make over 8% in our portfolios because institutional investors, that's the big banks, the investment firms, they have all this information, all this market-ready information, and any sort of market discrepancy or any sort of arbitrage, any sort of time where an asset is actually underpriced than its true intrinsic value, they would go in and buy it, and therefore there's no opportunity for retail investors. He screamed this at the top of the lungs. Like my professor really preached this at the top of the lungs, and he said it as a matter of fact. He said, look, guys, you can't beat the market. You should never even try to beat the market. It's actually impossible to beat the market because the market is always priced perfectly. I mean, this guy never saw the company GameStop. Like he, he realistically never saw the GameStop. I mean, this company went from a $200 million market cap to a $13 billion market cap within a span of months. Like you're telling me the whole time within that price movement that was perfectly priced. <laughs> I mean, I think as one of the biggest advantages of me going through a four-year degree of university is it gave me an insight into how people within institutions work, how the academics work, how people in the financial world, you know, working capital markets jobs work. Um, it really gave me the insight on how they actually think. And now it lets me kind of cross-reference that to how a retail trader proceeds to invest. Um, and what I'm finding recently in this world is that we're coming to a place where the retail investor, the average day you investor, you investor like you and I, we have an actual, almost like an advantage against a lot of these people who are traditionally educated within the stock market. Um, it's actually getting pretty insane, relatively insane. I think there's just so many different areas that uh, like come to mind. Like one of the biggest things is that I think a lot of academic and institutional people really struggle with is the idea of what is a brand's value. Like how do you value value brand? Like what is 
the brand of Nike, like what is its value? How do you put that on a balance sheet? How do you put that on a profit and loss statement? And I think that a lot of academics really get into themselves. A lot of institutional like analysts, they really get into themselves when they start relying too heavily on like a discounted cash flow model where you're trying to value the future cash flows of the company to come up with a magical price of what the company's stock's worth, right? When you're using all of these models or when you're trying to use like a leverage buyout model to understand like after, you know, you buy this company, like what's it worth or all of these models trying to map out a company's investment statement, trying to map out their income statement and really find out what a company's worth. I think they're missing a lot of vital components that are blinding institutional people from making um, the amount of money they really should be. Now, I want to caveat this, right? So I think that institutions as a whole, like if you're the big bank, like if you're a Wells Fargo or something like that, you have an investing mandate that you have to stick to. Those people are trying to get 8%. They're trying to get 10%. They're not trying to outperform the market. They're trying to get what the index does. And a lot of those people are in the mindset of, hey, I'm just trying to preserve capital and growth at the index. That's what my investors want. They want the low risk returns. That makes sense. However, I feel like a lot of people who are overly educated in the finance world, overly educated in the stock world and trying to make wealth for themselves, they come to these conclusions that I think they're a prisoner almost of the information that they have. And I, I believe that there's a lot of people on Wall Street bets, although a lot of them are going to lose money. There's a lot of people on Wall Street bets that are going to definitely overperform, um, you know, academic or institutional type investors. <laughs> Basically, I'm talking about institutional retail investors at this point. Um, they're going to overperform like the Wall Street bets. The average Joe is going to perform the more edu- outperform the more educated finance person. And. I think this is for a multitude of reasons. So the first one I kind of mentioned before was brand. How do you value brand? Now, you know, me trying to, you know, conjure up the stuff I studied three years ago, four years ago that I didn't re-study for this podcast. One of the ways that, you know, brand is kind of evaluated within companies is when I buy a company and I'm buying them for the amount of all of their assets the amounts that I pay over or the premium that I pay over that company, that intangible asset amount is sometimes referred to like as the brand of the company, right? So for instance, if Apple comes and they buy GameStop for $100 million when GameStop's worth is only $10 billion, that $90 billion difference would be accounted to the brand. So you'd see that on GameStop's balance sheet as like this brand asset and everyone can say, oh, their brand is worth $90 billion. That's kind of like the closest measure of like brand value that, and obviously, you know, the the calculation is a bit more complex than that, but that's the closest actual intrinsic way that an academic, someone who's academically trained within finance can think about brand in the marketplace. But I think one of the things where a lot of academics and finance people, they really start to struggle is with option. The reason to the second reason why 
I think that retail traders, the average Joe on Wall Street bets, is going to start really outperforming these finance trained, these institutional investor trained, these people who had jobs within capital markets. I think the average investor is going to outperform their portfolio might start outperforming them. And obviously by average investor, I mean like the average Wall Street bets user. The biggest thing is the interest rate environment that we're really in. You see, in economics, there's a very simple formula, right, that that we kind of abide by. And I think it really explains what's happening right now. And it's the formula for the real interest rate. You see, what the Canadian bank lists as the interest rate, that's actually like the nominal interest rate. And all that means is that the difference between the nominal interest rate, the nominal ones, let's say it's 1%, and the real interest rate, let's say the real interest rate is like 0%, the real difference between that is just inflation. Real interest rate, the actual formula for it is the nominal interest rate, so that's what the Bank of Canada lists, minus inflation. And that inflation they're referring to specifically is the CPI index, right? We're in a world where we're facing negative interest rate environments. Now think about what that means. That means that the the interest rate of the Bank of Canada, which is, let's say it's 1%, and inflation, let's say inflation is 2%, which is historically is, gives you a real interest rate of negative 1%. Now what does this mean? Think of it like this. Normally, when you give your money to a savings account in the bank, right, you're getting like historically used to be like around three or four percent interest rate. And what was great about a three or four percent interest rate where if the bank's paying you four percent interest to put your money in a bank, right, and you have to keep it there for one or two years or whatever, then your thousand dollars grows to around like a thousand forty dollars. Right. That's awesome. However, realistically, because the int- the inflation's around, you know, 2%, instead of getting $1,040 back, even though your account balance says $1,040, which you have in your bank, it's really $1,020 because that's what your purchasing power could buy this year. You know, a Big Mac now costs, instead of $2, it costs $3. Uh, Fries, instead of $2, it costs $3. Everything's around 2% more expensive within the economy. And therefore, the actual stuff that you can buy is down 2%. So because of that, you're not actually earning that $40 back, you're earning $20. A lot of people were were really comfortable with the idea of inflation. However, think about the bank accounts now that are offering you like (laughs) 0.2% savings return, right? If you go to most banks today, you can't even earn back 1% 1% if you put your money in the year in, in for a year. So let's say you take your $1,000 and you put into a savings account that gives you a 1% return, right? So you go to your Wells Fargo account, you use your savings account, and instead of $1,000 after the end of the year, you get $1,010 back. You get a 1% return. Well, we know inflation is 2%. We already know that. So realistically, you give them $1,000 to hold, and next year, you can only use 990 of those dollars because inflation has risen by 2%. So you're actually losing money when you give your money to the bank to hold, right? You're getting a negative return. And 
instead of a savings account giving you money, you're actually paying the bank to hold your money, right? And this is a very weird <laughs> investing environment that we're now in because when we're in negative interest rate environments, our whole capital system starts working a complete different way. Now, all of, all of a sudden, you know, our $10,000 or our $100,000 or whatever, if we're putting in that savings account, maybe we don't necessarily care about losing 2%. However, when you're Apple and you have $100 billion in cash, 2% of that is $2 billion lost to inflation. You're at a point where you cannot just put your money in a savings account and get the risk-free interest rate on your money because you're losing an insane amount of money to inflation. You have to invest your money. It is the only way to make money and actually maintain and grow your wealth. If you just put it away conservatively, you're going to lose an insane amount of money. So what does that essentially mean? All of a sudden, that's one side of the coin of a negative interest rate um, environment. You're not allowed to save your money in that environment because you're paying someone to borrow your money at that point, which matter of fact, doesn't really make sense, right? Think about it, right? Um, if someone asked you to borrow $100, you wouldn't say, hey, can you take this $100 that you asked to borrow with an additional $10 because I want you to borrow money? Like it doesn't, it, does, it just breaks down. It stops making sense. And the flip side to this coin is all of a sudden, now people are paying you to borrow money. So back to the back to the bank example, right? Let's say that you put where you're going to get put money, like, you know, give a thousand dollars to the bank, right? And they're like, okay, cool. You can give us this thousand dollars, and you know, it's gonna cost you an extra ten dollars for you to save this money. Or the bank says, we can give you a thousand dollars and we'll pay you an extra ten dollars to borrow our money. Now, all of a sudden, a bunch of people are offering to pay you money for you to borrow money. The cost of borrowing is negative. People want to pay you to hold on to their money. Now, for you and me, hey, Bank of Canada, or sorry, hey, Wells Fargo, hey, JP Morgan, Chase or Morgan Chase or Morgan Stanley. I don't know their bank's names. Hey, RBC, um, you want to give me money? All right, pay me to take your money. Right at this weird point where RBC wants to come give me $1,000 and they're giving me an extra $20 to borrow their money, which is weird. Like normally people don't pay you to borrow their money, but that's just the environment we're in. And for us, it sounds cool. Hey, First, it sounds really cool. We're making like an extra $20 to borrow, um, you know, money from these companies. But again, I will bring it back to Apple. All of a sudden, Apple is going to Morgan Stanley and Morgan Stanley is going to them and saying, hey, if you want to borrow another $100 billion, we're going to pay you a billion dollars to borrow $100 billion from us. Because again, remember, although 
on the sheet, it says that, you know, to borrow this money, it's 1%. With inflation coming to be 2%, or it can even be 3 or 4% this year, you're actually making money because the cost of everything next year is going up by 3 or 4%. So again, the cost of borrowing is negative. When Apple borrows money from Morgan Stanley, they are getting paid to borrow $100 billion. They're getting paid anywhere between $1 billion to $2 billion to even, it could be $3 billion next year. Because right now, inflation is at risk of rising rapidly. And we're seeing the creaks and the cracks of it, right? Normally, for the, you know, the federal government to keep a low interest rate environment, they got to keep buying bonds. They got to keep buying bonds. They got to keep buying, buying bonds um, because no one else will because bonds have no yields, right? However, we're seeing bond yields rising slowly or trying to rise. And if that's the case, um, the interest rates will eventually rise. Now, the government has to keep buying these bonds to make sure that interest rates won't rise. But realistically, they can't control that. They're, they're trying to, but it looks like they might be at a place where they just got to print way too much money to buy these bonds. Um, and it's really having an adverse effect and it could raise inflation a lot. What's this have to do with Wall Street bets versus the capital market type investors, the institutional investors, the smart finance guys, the academics? What's this have to do with them versus them? In a world where Apple is being paid to borrow $100 billion more dollars, in a world where literally any company like Facebook, Amazon, all these companies are being incentivized to borrow more money. Let me ask you a question. If someone was going to pay you a billion dollars to borrow a hundred billion dollars, would you do it? The answer is, well, of course, obviously, right? Because even if you didn't spend that hundred billion dollars that you borrowed, you would have still just made a billion dollars of wealth just from borrowing that money, a billion dollars of money, of real money that you got from borrowing that money. So what's that do to the price of assets within the economy? If every company is incentivized to borrow money because they're technically being paid for that money, that means we're in a situation where every company is incentivized to borrow the maximum amount of money that they can get their hands on. It's almost like an infinite money glitch loop that every company's in where they have to borrow the maximum amount of money. And what does that mean? That means that every single company in the world is significantly underpriced, right? In a negative interest rate environment where people are paying you to borrow their money, every single company, every single stock and asset and real estate building becomes underpriced. And when we think about how these companies are going to go up to their actual intrinsic price, the price of what they're actually worth, the companies that have the brand value, the companies that actually have the brand or the most highest prospects of making 
you know, of being that worth that much, they're the companies that are going to reach their intrinsic value first, the value of what they should be worth first. And now all of a sudden we're in a world where the brand value of all of these companies matters more than their discounted cash flow value because the amount of cash a company makes it doesn't matter it matters what the actual brand is worth no one thinks that google is worth two thousand dollars a share because of its cash flow is generating it's the brand of what it does it's how it's known it's the products it does it's the vision it has and that's why you're seeing companies like gamestop going from three hundred dollar million dollars to a market cap of you know over five billion over ten billion dollars because all of a sudden now the brand value of gamestop and what it means power to the players what it means for you know what it could do e-commerce wise how it represents the retail trader just the absolute brand of gamestop has completely transformed and as always the best most brightest investors are the uneducated ones that's because the uneducated investor they never stop learning i think a lot of the wall street bets users aren't doing this kind of cash flow models you know they're not looking at ebitda over i don't know i don't remember the formulas what is it ebitda over ebit ebitda over enterprise value like i don't even remember these formulas it's been a long time um but they're not calculating all of this stuff in Excel. They're literally saying, do I like the stock? They're reading the fundamental analysis of like, they're, they're like reading what the company's prospects are, like, you know, what kind of vision do they have? How are they trying to dominate within their marketplace? What kind of innovation are they happening there? Every retail investors, like retail investors are more um, comfortable investing in the story of a company, of a story of what a company could be, where institutional investor, they want to invest on what the cash flow statement is doing, what the profit and loss statement is doing, what the balance sheet's doing. And I think that investing in a world where companies are having infinite amounts of money, like right now you have to think of the economy as an infinite money pool, where an infinite amount of money is entering the economy. In that world where we have infinite amounts of money entering the economy, cash flow, has nothing to do with the future prospects of the company. It's all about how the, the company's story and how the company plans to execute that story. And I think retail investors, especially the ones in Wall Street Bets, have a bit better of an edge of actually deploying their capital based on the stories, the prospects, and the ex future executions of that company. Anyways, that's all I have for today, Flight Crew, and we have to take off. See you next time.